The Bible reading today is from the New Testament, James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who show endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my beloved, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any under oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nathan and Amy. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God, in the still and in the quiet of this moment, we come before you. Lord, we confess that life is not always easy. Sometimes we get ourselves into situations where we're in trouble, and we would love for you, uh, you to remove us from those. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we just feel overwhelmed, fatigued, frightened, anxious. And again, Lord, we sometimes in those moments, once you just to come in and swoop in and remove us from those things. But Lord, in our sufferings, in our trials, help us to be patient. Help us to experience your goodness, your mercy, your steadfast love, no matter what it is that we're facing or experiencing in life. Lord, we believe in you. We trust in you today. But Lord, help that faith to expand a little bit further. Help that trust to get a little bit stronger. Help us to lean on your everlasting arms in ways that we experience your strength, your peace, and your love in inexplicable fashion. So Lord, open our eyes today that we might see your truth in fresh new ways. Unclog our ears that we might hear your truth spoken to us very personal ways today. And Lord, give us lives that are soft, malleable, ready to take these truths and live them out to the honor and the glory of your name. May your good, pleasing, and perfect work be accomplished in us and may be accomplished through us in the days, weeks, and months to come. Now, Lord, I ask humbly that you would speak through me this morning, or I ask that you'd speak in spite of me. But I pray that your word would go forth, and I pray that lives would be changed to your honor and glory. All these things we ask that Christ might be honored and glorified both now and forevermore. And together, all God's people said, amen. Well, I know this is going to be something that seems very obvious this morning, but the pressures and the stresses of life come 
in many forms. Forms that are unique, in fact, I think, to each and every one of us, but ways that are universally experienced as well. You see, there are pressures from within, pressures that spring up from inside each and every one of us. Pressures, according to James, that stem from the desires and the passions that are waging war within each and every one of us. Pressures that come from hearing the word of God, but then choosing not to live it out. Not embracing God with every fiber and facet of our being, not leaning into and living out the way that he has shown us how to live. Pressures that arise as we are tired, as we're irritable, as the pressures to grumble and complain begin to well up and build up inside of us. The pressure to speak ill of someone who's done us wrong. But according to James, the pressures that we face, they aren't all self-imposed. They don't all come from those sources within us. No, according to James, there are pressures from within, but there are also pressures from without. Pressures that are imposed upon us from the world and from other people and even from the enemy. Pressures that are beyond our control. Societal pressures to put faith in kings and kingdoms of this world rather than the king whose kingdom is of a different world. The societal pressure to embrace the values of this world, to live according to the values of this world, rather than to live according to Christ and his will and his way. The pressure to embrace greed, for example, rather than generosity, or the pressure to treat people like we think they deserve, rather than in that graceful and merciful fashion that God has shown us, treating someone better than they deserve. As we live in communion with one another, as we live in community with other people, there's also peer pressure that we face. The pressure to fit in. The pressure to be part of the in crowd. The pressure to be accepted and loved and embraced. And in today's passage, James addresses a pressure that in many respects is a combination of the two. It's the pressure to be impatient. And that pressure is often a combination of both those factors. On the one hand, there are external forces at work, things that are going on in our lives that are beyond our control. And for James, a particular situation comes to mind. He says, be patient, therefore. And James' use of that word, therefore, in verse 7, it signals to us a continuation of thought. There's something that he's saying, and it's a continuation of what he's already been talking and writing to his audience about. In other words, in this section, he's going to continue what he's already been sharing with these Hebrew Christians regarding. And these 12 tribes that have been scattered abroad, these Hebrew Christians that have been forced to live in new places and in contexts that they're unfamiliar with, where they're strangers and foreigners, in these contexts, these people are facing oppression. Many of these Christians are economically poor because they're new to the community. They're not welcome. They're not accepted. Their businesses aren't thriving. In some places, they are literally slaves and being treated as such. In almost every one of these contexts where the 12 tribes have been scattered, they're on the fringes of society. They're overlooked and they're under-resourced. They don't have what they think is necessary for their survival. No one really cares about them. Their thoughts, their passions, their concerns, what they want out of life, no one is asking them for those sorts of things. They don't feel as if they're valued whatsoever. Some of them are barely scraping by, but the rich, by contrast, if you look at the beginning of chapter 5, they have everything according to James. 
The rich in these communities, they have power, they have influence, they have privilege. Everyone is talking about them, and everyone wants to know their opinion on everything. When they talk, everyone listens. Whatever they want is at their fingertips at a moment's notice. But these Hebrew Christians who have been scattered abroad, life is very different for them. They have none of those privileges. They have none of that power. And they have no influence over the society that they find themselves in. They look at this situation and they see it for what it is. It's unjust. It's unfair. The society that they're now inhabiting is very different than the heavenly kingdom that Christ has come, has brought, and is being ushered in later in all its fullness. In this situation, though, faced with these kinds of injustices, being treated in such a way, being despised and looked down upon, being overlooked, what are they as God's people to do? Given the unfairness of this situation, given the unfairness and injustice of this system, what are they as God's people to do? How are they to faithfully live for Christ in this moment that they now face? Well, I can tell you what the typical human response is in that situation. Overlooked, undervalued, not even being considered worth anything. Most people become angry in those situations. And in reality, maybe that kind of anger is warranted. I mean, it seems like it could be a viable solution in this kind of situation. If you're not noticed, why not just puff yourself up and make yourself bigger? Why not make someone take notice? And in reality, in our world, that happens a lot. You have the have-nots that revolt against the haves. In anger, those who are oppressed... They rise up against the oppressor. They seek to deal head on with the injustices that they face in life. They seek down to take the system that exploits them and uses them. In anger, the Hebrew followers of Jesus could have done just that. These who have been scattered abroad across the known world, they could have forcibly tried to take over. They could have tried to for, or change the form of government. They could have tried by point of hook, crook, and sickle to institute a very different society and a different set of values than what they were facing. But James recognizes that anger, that type of anger that comes so natural to us as humans, that kind of anger does not produce the kind of life or the kind of results that God desires. In fact, in verse 21 of chapter 1, he's quite clear that human anger is often very antithetical to the heart and the righteousness of God. So a society that's established in revolt, a society that's established in anger, it won't be any more just oftentimes than the one that came before it. Because when the tables are turned, the oppressed, they become the oppressor. And in those kind of situations, again, human anger does not produce the righteousness. The righteousness of God. Yet anger, revolt, the expression of our angst, that's often what we turn to and what we rely upon when we grow impatient. 
I mean, as Nathan said, you know, we're sitting there at the drive-thru and we're not getting our food fast enough. And so when we get to that window and we're finally handed our food and it's a little bit cooler than we'd like, what's the first thing we do? We want to unload on that person who hands us that bag of food. It may not have been their fault. It may have been that person in front of us who was just as angry and held up the line even further. But we think that our anger will produce some sort of result that will get us what we want. We grow impatient and the anger, the the revolt, the angst, they just bubble over. But when we become angry, change doesn't often come as quickly or in the fashion that we would like. But still, we want to revolt. We want to overthrow the system. We want to wipe the slate clean and begin again. But it's for that reason that James says what he does. He admonishes Christians, these Christians to whom he's writing, to be patient. He says, be patient, for God is at work. Be patient and wait for God's work to be done. Wait for God's work to be accomplished in the way that God wants it to be done. Because the day will come when God's justice, when God's righteousness, when God's kingdom will prevail. The victory will be achieved in all its fullness. And James looks at these Christians who are faced with these unjust circumstances. He's looking at these Christians who are wondering what they're supposed to do. And he likens their work of waiting patiently, but eagerly, to the work of the farmer. The farmer who tills the soil, who sows the seed, who does all that he can to prepare the field in such a way that the ideal situations are going to be there and that the crops are going to grow and that they're going to produce a bumper crop. But he says in that situation, right, things cannot be rushed. And in the same way, the growth of God's kingdom, the growth that God wants to have happen in us, it cannot be rushed. No amount of manhandling, no amount of conniving is going to cause the fields to grow any quicker, the crops to produce any sooner. Whether we like it or not, in those situations, we can't just go out at the first time, the first time we see this bean plant sprouting up from the earth, we can't go out and get down on our hands and knees and begin to tug and pull, thinking that somehow we're going to make it grow faster. Because all we're going to do is uproot it. All we're going to destroy is the work that will eventually be done. All we're going to do is eventually undo the beams that would have been produced. It'd be foolish to do that. But let's face it, James is right when it comes to so many areas of our life. That's exactly what we do. When we see the first signs of hope, when we see the first tide of things beginning to change, we go out and we, try, we want to try and pull. We want to try and speed it up. We want to try and microwave it. And get it there sooner. But then we find out it doesn't work. And in our impatience, James is right, we grumble and we complain. We complain about how anguishingly slow the process of change really is. Impatiently, we grumble and complain about the station of life that we find ourselves in because we feel stuck We know that for everything there's a season, but this life and this season, it just doesn't seem to be moving fast enough for us. And we can't wait for it to be over. Maybe for you, as the song said just moments ago, it's a season of sickness or illness. Maybe it's a season of economic turmoil where things aren't going well 
financially. Maybe it's a season of life in which it feels like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, and yet there always, it seems like, that next day is something else that falls apart. Maybe it's a season where his chicken little famously cried, the sky seems to be falling in your life. Maybe it's a season of loss, a season of sorrow. You see, when we're amid these seasons of life, we want them to be over. We want to move forward. We want to experience hope and joy and peace. We can't wait for the day when our poverty returns to surplus. We look forward to that day when our tears are going to turn to gladness. We look forward to those days when our loss is going to be replaced with abundance. We look forward to and we long for that day when those relationships that have been broken will be replaced and repaired by ones that are good and life-giving. We look forward to that day when the injustices of this life are going to be supplanted by justice. We look forward to that day when everything is going to be set right. When God is going to come and set things right once and for all. Putting everything in its place, everything as he intended it to be. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. We say, Lord, haste that day. But what do we do as we wait? What do we do as we long for that day? Well, sadly, as James well knows, one of the things we often try to do is we try to rush things along. Often like the kid who has a book report to do but has never actually read the book. We read the beginning and then we look to the end and we hope that what takes place in the middle doesn't really matter or at least that it's of little consequence or importance. But James has a different contention. His contention is that what happens in the middle matters greatly. What we do while we wait is of utter importance. How we live while we long for God's will to be fulfilled, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we do while we wait for that day, it matters to make that point, he says, look at the prophets. Look at these great heroes of the Hebrew faith, he says. And he's correct. The prophets, by and large, weren't what you and I would consider successful in this life. I mean, Jeremiah, one of the prophets that we love to hold up and we love to talk about. You know what Jeremiah was known as? The weeping prophet. He was the ball baby prophet. And rightfully so. He had every reason to cry, every reason just to weep. I mean, his life and his ministry was nothing short of difficult. Yes, it produced the fruit. It, he faithfully proclaimed God's word, but life was not easy for him. And like him, most of the prophets were mistreated. Most of them delivered their God-given message and God's people turned their back on them. They were met with hostility. They were beat up. They were thrown into cisterns. They were mistreated and mocked in all kinds of ways. Yes, in hindsight, they were great. Yes, they were incredibly faithful and their faithfulness is to be lauded and to be emulated. 
but their greatness was a result of their patience. Their dogged unwillingness not to give in, not to give up. You see, they were certain that God was doing something. They were trusting the God who had given them this message. And they were willing to stick it out no matter what they faced because they knew in whom they had believed and they were persuaded that their God was able. And so they persisted. They endured. And James says, be patient like them. Be patient as Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was patient. Be patient as Micah and Habakkuk were patient. And then lest we miss that point, James goes on to say, consider Job. Oh, and what an example that is to consider. I am thoroughly convinced that James' life would make the ideal country song. I mean, this is a guy who lost one thing after another, and he's waiting for someone to push the rewind button on his life so he gets everything back. But everything's stripped away. And if anyone had any reason to look heavenward and say, okay, God, any time now, and then look at their watch and say, today would be great, it was Job. I mean, Job was a righteous guy, Scripture says. Job was someone who had done nothing wrong and did nothing to deserve the troubles that he faced. Job, of all people, seems to have the reason to say, whatever you're doing, God, do it now. Let's hurry it up. Let's get to the end. Let's accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yet Job has patience. And there's an old cliche that we often throw about. Have the patience of Job. And James would agree. Friends, as you find yourself in the pressure cooker of life, Pressure comes in many forms, amen? Pressure comes in the forms of things that are imposed upon us. But sometimes pressures that we thrust upon ourselves. Our goal shouldn't be to avoid or escape the pressures. But instead, the question should be, how can I, with God's help, confront the pressures that I'm facing? How can I, with the help and assistance of God, how can I confront these pressures that I'm facing in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ? You see, James is clear about how we should respond. We should respond with faith. We should respond with patience. We should respond to the pressures of life with confidence, knowing that God is at work. Amen? He's not absent. He's not missing. He's not sleeping on the job. God is at work. And we should respond as that old hymn says, knowing in whom we have believed and being persuaded that he is able. He is able to keep that which, to which we've committed to him against that day. As people of faith, we wait patiently because we have faith in God. As people of faith, we wait patiently because of the character of the God that we serve. Just as the psalmist said in Psalm 107, we serve a God whose love is steadfast. It never leaves. It never diminishes. It never goes away. That is the God that we serve. 
And as people of faith, we wait patiently because we believe that this God that we serve is a loving God, a God of justice, a God of righteousness. And he is a God who will eventually set things right once and for all. But until that day comes, until God's kingdom arrives in all its fullness, instead of grumbling, instead of complaining, instead of forcibly trying to lay hold of that future promise, we wait. And as James says, it's okay to wait patiently, or with eagerness. But we must wait also patiently. We must wait with an eager anticipation of what God is going to do and even now what God is doing. But we must wait patiently, waiting for him to produce in us that fruit, that life, and that character that he's working so hard behind the scenes to produce. So to him be glory in his church and in our lives, both now and forever. Amen.